From the Cairo Radio Newsroom in Seattle, I'm Dave Ross, and these are the Ross Files. It's our pleasure to welcome Colonel Jeff McCausland, a retired Army uh, colonel. And you were, you were had an artillery battalion, right? Commanded an artillery battalion in Europe and then deployed them in 1990 to Saudi Arabia and commanded the battalion throughout the Gulf War in 1990-91. Along with Mike Lyons, he's one of yeah. uh, CBS's military. Mike was one of my battery commanders. So, so you guys worked together, huh? Yeah, he was one of my battery commanders during the, uh, during the war. And oddly enough, I uh, got to know Mike way back in the day because he was one of my students at West Point as a cadet when I was on the faculty in the Department of Social Sciences. How about that? Is he any good at artillery? Damn good at artillery. <laughs> uh, is he the guy who, who says fire or are you the guy who says fire? Well, it depends on whether you're firing the whole battalion or just firing a single battery, but mm. uh, most of that is actually done in the fire direction center for a lieutenant who's coordinating the, the actual data for the guns. The commander has overall responsibility, be he a battalion commander or a battery commander. Occasionally you get to give the, the command a fire, but it normally that's done, again, by the lieutenant. So on he's looking line. at a computer? You have a computer that calculates, of course, the elevation and the, uh, and the deflection left or right in which you direct the piece to make sure you hit the target. My knowledge of artillery is limited to World War II movies, where they didn't do it that way. <laughs> well, we always say in the artillery, you know, the one thing you have to remember, it was always, it was always fine when it left here. What happened on the other end, that's, that's a different story. <laughs> uh, so let's talk about uh, America's military uh, situation now. I guess, I guess the, the most emergent uh, challenge is Iran, because we, we're seeing tankers actively detained on both sides. Uh, do you think we have a handle on on the game that Iran is playing here? And, and does everybody know what the line is? Not really, and, and I'm not sure we, the Iranians may even know what the, the game is here, because in their case, of course, we talk about Iran as a unitary actor. But I think in many ways what we have to understand is there are various factions throughout Iran. You have the Iranian government under President Rouhani, uh, which were the ones who were the strongest supporters of the Iran nuclear deal negotiated with the Obama administration. They were strongly criticized in Iran by very more, much more conservatives who follow the line of the Ayatollah and the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And I think the operations we see at sea there in the Gulf were probably largely the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. So Guards. They, they just have a guy who can order them to seize a ship? Yeah, they could have, that, could, that could be and, and outside of the actual government and present them a fait accompli. It also offers them, I think, the chance to play what I would say sort of good cop, bad cop. Uh-huh. At the same time that you have these efforts against tankers in the Gulf, we have the foreign minister in the at the United Nations in New York for various meetings talking about their willingness to negotiate with the United States. They even was talk about the Iranians would offer up more inspections of their nuclear facility uh, in return for some reductions in the sanctions. So they seem to be playing both sides of the street there. And at the same time, of course, they're trying to maintain not only pressure on the United States, but the Europeans who have been trying to find a workaround for American sanctions since our European allies, Brits, French, Germans, as well as the Russians and the Chinese, still would argue that the Iranians are largely complying with that nuclear deal and that the sanctions should be reduced. But just to understand this Revolutionary Guard and the, the idea that they have uh, independent freedom, the free to act as they wish, w- this would be like, what, the, the commandant of the Marines ordering an, an amphibious assault all on his own? Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, but some level of government, in other words, because yeah. they, they take their commands in some ways down through the chain, perhaps going back to all, all the way to the Ayatollah, because in the... In Iran, you've got this combination of, a, of democracy. They do elect their president. Uh, but overseeing that is a theocracy with the uh, Ayatollah old in charge and a, and a council of advisors there as well. 
they, but they are so powerful they can perhaps do certain things uh, which the government may or may not be aware of. Or, again, the government can use that bit of ambiguity, perhaps, as I suggested, uh, to play uh, a little bit of good cop and bad cop. So the bright line the president has drawn is that if you kill or injure an American, we retaliate. But, but given what you just told me, do we retaliate just against the headquarters of the Revolutionary Guard or, you know, against the, the presidential palace? Yeah, and that, and that is a problem, of course. And we saw that just recently, a couple of weeks ago, where uh, they downed a, a drone of ours. Uh, both sides are arguing for the Iranians that it was over Iranian airspace. We argued over the international airspace when it was down. And the president had initially approved a strike, probably against the place where that drone was launched, only to interrupt and, and decide not to do that shortly before the launch. So in each of those cases, what both sides are trying to do is do a bit of a tit-for-tat while not allowing this to escalate and get totally out of control. So they've taken down one of our drones. We took down one of their drones. Uh, they do certain things with the tankers. We put more naval ships in the area. And at the same time, by the way, uh, there's been an increased activity in cyberspace, as there are reports that we're seeing more and more Iranian efforts to perhaps penetrate U.S. Uh, government sites as well as other sites here in the United States and, and frankly, probably uh, more enhanced U.S. Uh, offensive cyber capabilities being exercised against Iran as well. Are we ready for attacks like that? We're as ready as we're going to be. I mean, on the first day of a war, you're as ready as you're going to be. Of course, one thing that the United States has a great advantage of is obviously we have massive technology in this particular area, number one. No, no two ways about it. That being said, there's a very, very large economy and a very large open economy, an open democracy. In many ways, we're a lot more vulnerable to cyber attacks than perhaps states that don't have that level of democracy or that level of, frankly, industrial sophistication. A country like North Korea, for example, or Somalia, is in many ways much more invulnerable to cyber attacks than we are. Right. Less dependence on computers. Less dependence on computers. Uh, going back to around, though, do, do they have a case in that, from their point of view, they had been abiding by the nuclear agreement? And, and there was no evidence on our side that they had been violating it. Um, it's pretty clear that the sanctions have made life there pretty miserable. Uh, we actually visited there back in 2010, and it was tough then. I imagine it's even, it's even tougher now. Um, they would argue that whatever we're doing, whatever we intend to do with our uh, nuclear program, we haven't done it yet. And in the meantime, our people are suffering. We'd like to be able to sell our oil. You're stopping us from selling our oil. If somebody did that to us as Americans, we'd go to war. Exactly. I mean, their case would be simply that the agreement was signed in 2015 with the Obama administration. Uh, it was a very narrow-focused agreement, basically a quid pro quo. Iran would destroy certain of its nuclear facilities. It would reduce the amount of active material still, still in the country. It would allow itself to have... Uh, pretty extensive uh, sanctions by the International Atomic Energy Agency. By the way, I would I'd quickly add such inspections that we can only dream of having were we to get an agreement with North Korea. And all countries were signatories to that, not only the United States and Iran, of course, but British, French, Germans, Chinese, uh, and the Russians. Uh, and the sanctions were reduced, and they, they succumbed to those particular inspections. Trump administration pulled us out of that particular agreement arguing really that, that uh, it should have been a broader agreement that would have included restrictions on Iranian long-range missile testing and a pledge by Iran to reduce its support for various terrorist groups throughout the Middle East, most notably Hezbollah in Lebanon, Hamas in the Gaza Strip. 
So that effort to expand the agreement was why we pulled out. But at the same time, again, our allies and the Russians and Chinese said, wait a minute, They're, they are in fact subscribing to this agreement and we, we should go ahead with it. So the question right now in many ways to me is what is the end state, frankly, that the Trump administration is seeking? What's the diplomatic off-ramp? If your goal is to uh, overthrow the regime, well, then the chances of getting a diplomatic solution are pretty slim and the chances of going to war are pretty high. If your uh, goal is some kind of negotiation, perhaps for a broader agreement, then the question is what is the framework whereby you would conduct those negotiations? That, that uh, Iran nuclear deal offered us a framework that we could try to build upon. We've walked away from that. We've seen various countries in the region, Oman, United Arab Emirates, the Swiss, the Iraqis, uh, offered to mediate. Japanese actually have gone there. Prime Minister Abe was in Tehran a few months ago offering to mediate. So far, the administration has not uh, taken them up on that particular offer. So was dropping out of that deal a mistake? Frankly, I think it was. I mean, was it a perfect agreement? Of course not. Did it, in fact, however, restrict the uh, efforts by Iran to move forward and produce a nuclear weapon? I think it pretty much did, with pretty significant restrictions upon them in, in transparency and verification measures. Could they have cheated on that? Perhaps, but I think the verification was sufficient. Is there an argument that we should seek to get the Iranians to restrict long-range missile testing? Yeah, probably. And to restrict their support for these terror groups? Yes, as well. But the question is, is that something you build upon or do you demand this big deal and in the meanwhile walk away from this agreement that, again, puts us in counter not only to the Iranians, but puts us counter to many of our principal NATO allies? Yeah. North Korea, what have we gotten in return for those two meetings with Kim Jong-un? Precious little, but a lot of nice photographs. Uh, we have seen a, certainly a reduction in tension, but many people would argue, critics of President Trump certainly would argue, that at the, his arrival in, the, in government that he had ramped up. He had actually created you know, a crisis by his rhetoric about Little Rocket Man and destroying North Korea. Fire Korea's. and fury. Fire yeah. and fury, yeah. exactly right. Uh, and in response, we saw you know, North Korean rhetoric go up as well. Uh, We seem to have had, after the Singapore meeting, a tacit agreement between President Trump and Kim Jong-un that the North Koreans would not test any more long-range ICBM-like weapons that could threaten the United States and would not conduct any more nuclear tests. In return, the United States uh, basically agreed we would not conduct joint military exercises with South Korea, which the North Koreans have always portrayed as being a preparation to invade Mm -hmm. North Korea. That's a tacit agreement. There's not really anything written down on a piece of paper. And then some vague discussions about defining denuclearization on the Korean Peninsula and then moving ahead to a negotiation. But that's all we've gotten so far, and there's no real format for negotiations ongoing. The president uh, appointed a special envoy, Stephen Began, but he's had few, if, if any, significant meetings with his North Korean counterparts. He has had meetings certainly with South Korea and Japan. And one of the real crucial problems for the Trump administration moving ahead is how do they coordinate their efforts with South Korea and Japan? Because certainly if we were to get into negotiations, North Korea would try to drive a fissure between those various alliances. Right. So um, is there anybody who really believes North Korea is going to destroy all of its nukes? Nobody that I know of who understands the problem. I mean, at the end of the day, we have to understand one thing about Kim Jong-un. His ultimate goal is pretty straightforward. He wants to survive. He wants to survive in control of North Korea 
in a fashion that hopefully he'll die very old and bad and pass on control of this particular country, which has, by the way, the GDP of Des Moines, Iowa, uh, over to his successors, just the way his grandfather and his father uh, passed it over to him. And a nuclear weapon is not something because he, he anticipates going on the offensive and attacking Los Angeles. It's the penultimate life insurance policy. We won't visit him militarily as long as he can hold at risk some significant target in the United States or against one of our principal allies. The GDP of Des Moines? GDP of Des Moines. Does that mean Des Moines may have a secret nuclear program we don't know about? Gee, I don't know. That might be a good topic for the upcoming <laughs> Iowa caucuses and campaigns. That's I what I'm know. thinking. <laughs> no other way to keep the candidates out of the state That's unless right. you have a, a, a nuclear threat. Uh, so one more thing to ask you about, and that's the uh, that's the Middle East. And I guess that gets us back to uh, Iran. One of the one of the scenarios for how a war might start in Iran is that they cross a nuclear line. And we do nothing, but Israel says that's it, <laughs> and they press the button. And I, I guess that doesn't. I don't know. Would, are they obligated to check with us before they do that, or could they do that all on their own? They are not obligated that I know of. We have very close treaty obligations with the Israelis, but we've seen the Israelis in the past conduct attacks as they did against the uh, the Iraqi nuclear facilities back in the 1980s. And I'm pretty confident they didn't check with us before they did that as well. Uh, that being said, things in Israel right now are very interesting because, of course, you just had elections in the spring. Mr. Netanyahu, now the longest-serving, I believe, or close to the longest-serving prime minister in Israeli history, was unable to form a government. So it looks like Israelis are going back to the polls in September. And it's a pretty evenly divided country between a, a more moderate liberal portion of the population and a more conservative. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu actually has fewer seats than his principal liberal uh, opponent, but he's been able to knit together very extreme uh, Jewish uh, small parties into creating a coalition. Whether he can do that again or not in September remains to be seen, number one. Number two, of course, he's under investigations that in many ways are far worse than the challenges you might say Mr. Trump has. Yeah. And there's very, very clear evidence that he may well be indicted by the same Supreme Court justices that he put into office a number of years ago, and as well as his wife being indicted. This is some personal scandal? Involving some personal going, scandals yeah. That, yeah, and some kickback or allegations yeah. of kickbacks. So once again, the whole political constellation of Israel could change rather dramatically over the next couple of months. And then that begs the question again, how would Israel respond if, in fact, as you suggest, Iran was to move ahead towards some kind of a nuclear option. My guess is the Iranians, even if they continue to you know, move beyond some of the aspects of the Iran nuclear deal, would not overtly move to building a nuclear weapon. They would want to move closer to it to maintain pressure. But I think they fully understand you know, the outright construction of a nuclear weapon, perhaps a, nu a nuclear test or a lot of testing of long-range missiles might bring on either a response from the United States and or a response from Israel. Mm. And Russia. I can't leave out Russia. <laughs> Russia may have a GDP slightly larger than Des Moines, but I don't think is, – is it as big as California? No, I don't think so. And as one uh, – only quote a, a current Russian politician who pointed out, you know, we're a country that still has 35 million outhouses across the country, which suggests kind of what your economy looks like. And, and the Russians, of course – uh, spend slightly less on defense than Saudi Arabia. Now, they're a lot more efficient and effective at what they spend, but they only spend about 80 to $90 billion a year, as best we can tell, on defense as compared to 
I guess the House just passed the National Authorization Budget at about $733 billion for the coming coming year. And for as far as economic comparisons, last time I checked, the Russian economy was about the size of Belgium. Belgium. Okay. So – and yet there's still a threat because they're a nuclear power. And they, and they have uh, a remarkable way of invading countries on the sly, uh, as they did in Crimea. Is, do they have – since it worked pretty well, I mean, we've given them a pass on it as far as I can tell. Are they going to try more of the same? I think they'll try more of the same in so-called hybrid warfare or warfare in the so-called gray zone, which is what military planners talk about now. You know, when I was commissioned way back in 1972 – we talked about military operations and warfare in three domains, air, land, sea, and we had services that reflected that. Now, as we get to the 21st century, we really have five domains of warfare, the same three, air, land, and sea, plus we have cyberspace, and we have outer space. We're very heavily dependent for military operations, for surveillance, for accuracy of weapons on satellites. Oh, by the way. And the Russians now, I think, are fashioning so-called hybrid warfare, which is a combination of things like we would call it organized crime. We would call it cyber attacks. We would call it little green men like we saw in Crimea and in some cases uh-huh. in eastern. We would call it surrogates. And we would call uh, other efforts to try to influence the architecture and the strategic picture, particularly on their periphery. And they'll put pressure on the countries on their periphery, as we see in Ukraine and probably also frequently in the Baltic republics, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, and Estonia. Huh. So they have organized crime divisions, the uh, the 35th Mafia Infantry? Yeah, we'd, we'd call it organized crime. We'd call it cooperation with organized crime. Of course, you can, you know, many people might quickly point out that there were arguments back during the Cold War that in the 1960s, the United States attempted to elicit the Mafia to try to take out Fidel Castro. Yeah, Whether right. that was proven or not, I'm not sure. Hmm. So are we ready for all this? How's military recruitment going? Well, military, What's the yeah. status of our troops? <laughs> Military group recruitment, I think, in the future will be a difficult proposition. I mean, the challenge we've got, yeah, anytime you have a robust economy, as we do right now, frankly, you can look back historically, military recruitment is difficult because young people have a whole bunch of opportunities. Furthermore, if you were to line up, if we were to line up here in this studio, 10 young Americans, male and female, uh, only three of those 10 would qualify, 18-year-olds, would qualify to join the military. Why? High school diplomas, physical fitness, evidence of perhaps— How many push-ups do you have to do? Uh, at least 20 or 30 or something, but some basic. I could do that. Of course, I'm 67. They probably wouldn't want something. Yeah, run a couple of miles, you know. <laughs> so you have the, the problem of how many of them seek that opportunity. And when you interview young 18-year-olds, very few of them, you know, think about the military as a career option yeah. that they like to exercise, number one. And number two, even if you did that, based on our, our recruiting requirements, a large number of them wouldn't even qualify. So you have that problem. And then number two is we now need a more and more sophisticated uh, soldier, sailor, airman, marine. When I was a young officer, I remember one back in again the early seventies. I remember when I first drivers. And I asked this guy, "How'd you ever get in the army?" And he looked at me and he said, "Sir, back in Texas, the judge said Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, or the Texas Penitentiary, and I decided on the army." <laughs> well, we, do, we can't do that kind of thing anymore, no, and, he, and he wouldn't be the kind of soldier we need no, for cyberspace, not. et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> uh, well, okay. Uh, are they? Are they? Uh, are they? Dealing with the LGBT thing, uh, is that going forward or not, where they're going to remove them? I'm a little uncertain where that's at right now, to tell you the truth, because we've been back and forth in the court cases. The Trump administration attempted to ban uh, people who were uh, 
LBGTQ from uh, joining the military. A real question of people who had been admitted under previous provisions uh, provided by the Obama administration, what their status was, would, would they be forced out, would they be terminated at the end of their enlistment? Some real questions there which are now working their way through the court. Uh, we're talking about a relatively small percentage of the American population, but when you aggregate the problem, what we need is you know, a very sophisticated, qualified person yeah. who is willing to be recruited but, el- but being able to be developed and retained uh, for a long period of time because of the sophisticated things we want them to be able to do. So it you might say in the 21st century, you know, when we used to worry about how many push-ups, pull-ups, and how fast yeah. you could run, well, if you're talking about a cyber warrior, whether or not he or she is all that physically fit or has thick Coke bottle glasses may not matter quite so much as much as are they really a sophisticated hacker on a computer. Sounds like, you, you, based on what you're telling me, we really can't afford to disqualify a whole group of people who might be qualified. It, it becomes difficult, but at the same time, I, I am, as an old soldier, I'll have to say you have to have certain baseline requirements. Uh-huh. I, I don't... I don't uh, uh, subscribe to the notion that, you know, joining the military is a right because we discriminate. We discriminate from people who are handicapped. We can't have handicapped oh, yeah, people. Right. Going, but, I mean, pe- people who are physically – it sounds like when we're talking about uh, kicking out transgender people or LGBTQ, these are people who are physically fit, but because of their sexual preference, right. they're being excluded. That doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense to me, and there's been the argument that this is adverse to good order and discipline, that having these particular people in the barracks or aboard a ship yeah. will cause a lack of cohesion in the organization. All the studies that I've seen have been done on that, and there have been a number, have been unable to substantiate that as a systemic problem. Now, were there perhaps an argument between two GIs, one that was gay and one was non-gay? Well, yeah, sure. Just like back in the day when I was a young soldier, did we have arguments between black soldiers and white soldiers? Did that mean we should exclude blacks or Asians who were ethnic minorities, racial minorities from joining the military? Of course not. Uh, so I have never seen systemically evidence that this is adverse overall to military cohesion. What about non-citizens? We're so grateful to be in this country. They joined the military in hopes of, uh, you know, taking a shortcut to citizenship. That, that had been a tradition. And I remember being in Iraq in 1991, standing on top of a howitzer in the middle of nowhere, and we got the paperwork arrived in the mail that one of my NCOs, who was a Canadian, had been approved for his American citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I swore him in as an American citizen in Iraq. Right there. And I've seen a number of cases where young guys, I remember one time being in the Pentagon and being handed a, a, a sheaf of papers of guys who had been killed in Iraq. And on the top turned out to be a young African guy who had immigrated to the United States, joined the Army just for the reason you described, mm-hmm. and unfortunately was killed in combat before he became an American citizen. That's how my grandfather became a citizen. He was Italian and, uh, yeah, fought in World War One. They swore him in as a citizen in, in Ross County, Ohio, and that's the name he took. <laughs> well, you know, I, I do a lot of leadership workshops at, uh, using the Gaysburg Battlefield. Yeah. People forget about 20 to 30 percent of the entire Union Army during the American Civil War were first-generation Americans, were not mm-hmm. born in the United States. Wow. Colonel Jeff McCausen, retired Army colonel. Jeff, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Great pleasure. Remember that when there's a longer version of the interviews on Seattle's Morning News, you can usually find it right here in the original form, unconstrained by the limitations of a live broadcast. And you can subscribe so that when someone says, did you hear what was on Seattle's Morning News, you can say, not only that, I heard the part 
that wasn't on Seattle's Morning News. So my advice is to subscribe. And then when we talk to an author, a politician, an entrepreneur, an artist, a scientist, a teacher, a journalist, a celebrity, you'll hear every word. I'm Dave Ross. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.